The most widely viewed and followed singular sporting event in the world has arrived in the form of the 2022 World Cup, hosted by the small, oil-rich Middle Eastern nation of Qatar. However, despite the passion for this event, this year's World Cup is admired in corruption, scandals, political intrigue, and accusation of the use of slave labor by the hosting nation, which has further damaged the reputation of football's ruling body, FIFA, also known as the Federation International de Football Association, which brings us to the question today of how we got here and what will happen next. From Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I'm your host, Drew Starbuck. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students and members of our Global Currents eboard today. Helping cover the situation today, our first analyst is Hamza Khan. Hi, Hamza. Hi, Drew. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on the show. And joining him today is our other analyst, Bobby Kyle. Hi, Bobby. Hey, Drew. All right, guys. I first want to get into just the background of the World Cup because I think we're all big soccer fans here, but we'll go into the background of how big this sporting event is and why it matters so much. So first off, I want to ask about the lucrative nature of how the World Cup is perceived. Right. So the World Cup is the oldest global international soccer tournament in the world and it's also the most popular. This World Cup is expected to be viewed by nearly 5 billion people which is a clear majority of the population. (laughs) So the fact that every country in the world has such a passion for this sport and they all tune in to watch the World Cup makes it really lucrative for the host countries because they see it as a tourism opportunity, a promotional opportunity, an opportunity to, to promote their culture, soft power. It seems very lucrative when you first try to apply to get the hosting position. And enormous tax breaks are given to FIFA's sponsors like Budweiser. And um, FIFA also, they make most of the money from the tournament, more so than the host nations. FIFA makes money from TV rights, which can be worth billions of dollars, and they make the revenue from the ticket sales. So exact numbers are really difficult to quantify because Qatar has spent billions on it and how much they'll make from it. It's unclear, but... For them, it's not really about the money because they feel like whatever they can express about their country through the World Cup is worth more than the price they pay to host it. And I really think you dug into, Hamza, about both the lucrative nature of the World Cup and the passion and scale for that event. You mentioned 5 billion people tuning in. I think the world just reached the point of 8 billion people in the world. That's more than half (laughs) the world's population tuning into this event. But with this lucrative opportunity comes people seeking to take advantage of that for their own ends and things like that. So... There's been numerous controversies surrounding previous World Cups. Do we want to go into the background of those? Yeah, so obviously as the world's largest sporting event, World Cups are ripe for controversy. Obviously, there's been massive controversy with this one in Qatar. But going back, I mean, there's so many examples. Italy in 1934, we saw with the rise of Mussolini and fascism. Mussolini here understood the power of soccer internationally and hosting the World Cup. We saw a stadium named after him rigging accusations, and this was all before human rights was like a norm at the time. Argentina in 1978 with their brutal military junta, there was direct calls for boycotts of that World Cup, um, and lots of cover-ups during it. Lots of people disappeared, and there were accusations that games were actually rigged during that, and there was actually a lot of regret that came out of that World Cup with the sports washing, which we'll cover later, of the political junta at the time. And just a recent example, 2018, we see with Russia, uh, it looks like a modern-day 1936 uh, Olympic Games held in Germany. We all obviously know it followed that, given you know the current 
Ukraine situation that we find ourselves in. They saw it as a chance to show off Russian culture as separate from the state. France and England don't regret playing in it, and that's kind of a pattern we see here with teams, and specifically with Qatar today, because looking at controversies in Qatar, we see, as again we'll cover later, lots of LGBTQ issues, uh, human rights issues, but yet the games are still played because of how big the stage is, and as strong as calls for boycotts can be, there will never really be full-scale boycotts yeah, with, on you know, the largest stage. Just like the passion of the sport makes it so like, I believe that even if it was hosted in North Korea, nobody would boycott it just <laughs> because of the nature of the sport itself. Like the passion it, the fans have for this sport, it's way bigger than any other global event, the Olympics or anything else. Yeah. And you mentioned it's not just about the fans' passion for the sport of like, and you mentioned players sometimes regretting playing, but to the players it represents a chance to serve their country and also gain fame on a scale ever seen if they can carry their team on to victory in some ways. And then I think, Bobby, you got into a little bit the political nature of the World Cup and how many see it as an opportunity to show off their culture and also politicians to flex their power. So I want to get into the next question that I have kind of going off that, which is what is Qatar, the host of the World Cup, what culture are they trying to present during this World Cup as the host? So obviously we see a trend right now with Middle Eastern countries like that of the UAE with a strong turn towards tourism and the tourism industry. Um, And Qatar wants to be a part of that because of the amount of money that's inside of that. So they use this World Cup as a great opportunity to promote Qatari culture, to promote their countries in general as a great place because they know that the World Cup will only last a month or so, but the impact that the World Cup could have showcasing Qatari culture to the world is much larger. This is obviously going into the soft power international legitimacy, specifically because Qatar is so, you know, such an authoritarian country as tends to happen in that part of the world. They really want to make the country known in a positive light for tourism. Yeah, going off of what you're saying, this is also the first time a Middle Eastern Arab Muslim country is hosting the World Cup. and. The eyes of the world are on this country, and it's their chance to show off not just their culture, but Islam and Arab culture to the world. The way that the state, even like the design of the stadiums is based on Qatari culture. Like there's one stadium that's designed to look like a traditional cap worn around the region. There's another stadium called the Al-Bayt Stadium that looks like a tent that represents the Bedouin heritage of the Arab people in the Arabian Peninsula, especially in the Gulf region and in Qatar. And there's also the Lusail Stadium that's designed, it's a very beautiful stadium. It's designed like artistic bowls that, uh, that represent the ancient tradition of craftsmanship in the region. I want to go further into Qatar's hosting of the World Cup, Hamza, as you mentioned, of like the stadiums and things, and I will definitely get into the stadiums part because yes. there's a long history with the World Cup and building stadiums of what that represents for the country and what happens after the World Cup. But I first want to start with the corruption accusations launched at FIFA with their successful bid, and that kind of ties into Russia in 2018 as well. Do you want to go on to that, Hamza or Bobby? Uh, yeah, I'll speak up here. on. Uh, like I was speaking previously, FIFA is not an organization that has been known to be absent from corruption. <laughs> Just looking <laughs> back at the, the World Cups in general, 2006 in Germany, 2010 in South Africa, 2018 in Russia, and obviously we see it today in Qatar. FIFA has been accused of corruption, and there have been indictments of corruption based on bids uh, for the World Cup, based on media contracts, really anywhere you can find it. Qatar 2022 was, of course, special in this scenario because of the indictments that came from it. 
FIFA officials were accused and indicted over bribery in Russia in 2018 and 2022 in Qatar. Um, more than half of the voters, uh, of course the FIFA board votes on who they want to host the World Cup, more than half of these voters were accused of bribery for their votes. Uh, a good portion have been indicted or arrested. In fact, it brought down the president of FIFA at the time, Sepp Blatter. Uh, he was forced to resign in the wake of the selection. Similar situations took place in previous votes, like that of South Africa. The U.S. Department of Justice indicted many FIFA officials, and many have been arrested for ties with this. You mentioned just the massive amount of money that is spent on by these countries and host nations to secure their bids for the World Cup. I also want to get into, you mentioned the stadiums, Hamza. Uh, yeah. A lot of these stadiums have been considered what people would call white elephants or right. things like that. Do you want to go into why that is? Yeah, so that just comes from the phrase like a white elephant problem, which is like when you have something really fancy, but you don't know what to do with it after you've already used it. So that's what happens a lot of the times with countries when they have the World Cup. They build these lavish stadiums that are like that can host thousands and thousands of people. But we've seen in cases like South Africa and Brazil after the World Cup, they don't have the teams or the infrastructure to continue using it plus taxpayer money is used to build it and sustain it. So it's kind of a loss for the country in the long run, even though they had a, a huge uh, bump in tourism and the revenue that comes along with that. Qatar itself has spent about $200 billion on this World Cup, which blows like the previous amount spent by other countries out of the water. This is probably, just to put that into context, Russia and Brazil both cost less than $15 billion, and Qatar has spent $200 billion on this one. The reason for this is because they've also had to build up a lot of infrastructure in the country to accommodate all the millions of tourists who are going to be coming in. They had to rebuild infrastructure, metro systems, buildings, stadiums. The stadiums alone were like $6.5 billion, and they built seven brand new ones. A lot of them won't be used again for the purpose of soccer or football after the World Cup because they just don't have the infrastructure or the, the league system that can sustain a kind of competitive soccer culture after the World Cup. And since it has a tiny population of around 300,000 citizens and 2.9 million people, the majority of which are migrant laborers. So they, they do have ideas of how to avoid the white elephant problem for Qatar. They're going to turn a lot of them into like schools and like um, malls hotels and resorts and other things like that. They're going to make them into like apartments and then they're also donating a bunch of their seats to a developing country so they can build their own soccer infrastructure. So they do have an idea to avoid the white elephant problem. Whether they will be successful where other countries have not been remains to be seen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's good that there's a plan in place, at least by the host nation, to do this. But it also fits in with the peculiar nation, nature of this World Cup, in particular, of Qatar having plans ahead of this advance. And you mentioned the exceptional nature of the spending that the host nation is doing on these things. One thing that's also uh, unique about this World Cup is the fact that we're having it in the winter. Currently, it is November 21st, the day <coughs> that we're recording this. And almost <laughs> always the World Cup is in the summer, yeah. and now it's in the winter as we're tuning in. Of course, I assume the reason that we're doing it in the winter right now is because it's too hot, but yeah. is there another reason playing into the effect of having the World Cup in the winter? Well, definitely because of the heat. Players aren't, can't be expected to play in the desert. It gets above like 100 degrees Fahrenheit sometimes, so it would really be impossible to have it in the, in the summer. Plus, this uh, Qatar, the World Cup, like it's part of their um, national project that they want to transform their country. So they, Qatar, they have this program called the Qatar National Vision Project. 
and it aims to transform Qatar into an advanced society capable of, che- of achieving sustainable de- development. And they have many pillars, economic, social, human, and environment. Um, they want to expand Qatar's economy because Qatar is an oil-rich country. And the oil, the fossil fuels, it won't last forever, and they know that, which is part of why they're pushing for this kind of soft power foray into like international sports so they can get more, they can build more um, things that can help their economy. They can build more... Um, more, yeah. better economic infrastructure yes. and diversify mm-hmm. their economy beyond oil. Yeah. Um, you mentioned diving into the sports world, and this term keeps coming up when we talk about Qatar and hosting the World Cup and also just soccer in general, not just international soccer, uh, the term sports washing. And I think the, the average listener may not understand the, what the sports washing term means. Do we want to go... Bobby, you or Hamza go into what sports washing actually is and what that entails. Yeah, so sports washing is a term used for countries like Qatar um, that face human rights allegations to use sports to deflect away from the human rights allegations that, they fa- that they're facing. Qatar obviously is not a stranger to human rights uh, abuse allegations. We'll get into it later, but there's lots of issues there and but for them this is a great opportunity to turn away from that the allegations against Qatar now the effectiveness of sports washing isn't exactly known there's not like a it's not an exact science and it's not always completely useful in fact sometimes as in the case with Qatar here specifically some people even make the case that it brings more attention because before the World Cup not as many people were focusing on the country of Qatar as you know, a hotbed of human rights allegations, but they're hoping that using sports washing as a way to make themselves look desirable for this tourism, make themselves look as a destination, that this won't come up when people think of the country. And Qatar, obviously, this is part of their plan, is hosting the World Cup in the sports washing process, but it's not the only part. Uh, They've taken over Paris Saint-Germain, which is a French team, and like delved billions and billions of dollars into it sort of to make themselves seem seen in a good light and it's not just Qatar it's different countries in the Middle East that own and take over these big clubs and delve so much money into it we see it with Jersey sponsorships Arsenal with Fly Emirates all over the place it's really taken over the soccer world and it's a way to have these companies these brands these countries come off as favorable because when people think of them let's just say good things are not related with their uh, human rights abuses. Yep. So just to summarize what you're talking about, Bobby, it seems like it's an attempt to put kind of a sheen over the past and the way of ruling that a lot of these Middle Eastern rulers or oil-rich monarchies are ruling their nations and to present, oh, this is what we're doing, we're sponsoring all these sporting events and things. And we're focused specifically on the soccer world here, but it seems to me that sports washing in general is spread beyond just soccer into things such as the golf or tennis as you see with the live golf tour coming about and things like that so it's definitely a more modern day phenomenon that we'll continue to see more of and that brings us to the point of like the human rights things and i want to dive into it takes a lot of labor as hamza put earlier to build all these stadiums and things and of course a lot of this world cup is to putting that sheen of glitter over what has Qatar has been what many call a modern-day slavery system. So I want to get into that and look at the place of migrant workers and what is their place in the Qatari economy. 
Right, so probably the most controversial aspect of the World Cup being held in Qatar is the, f- is the way they treat their migrant workers and the spotlight that's been shown on it. Migrant workers make up about 90% of Qatar's population, which is pretty extraordinary. And the majority of them are recruited from like poor South Asian countries like India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Nepal. Thousands of them come from those countries and they send remittances back. Since 2010, workers have faced delayed or unpaid wages, forced labor, long hours in hot weather, employer intimidation, and about 30,000 new workers were hired for the World Cup. Um, Something unique about Qatar and the Gulf countries in general, like Bahrain and Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, they have something called the kafala system, which is like a legal framework that defines the relationship between workers and employers in the Middle East, rather than like employers, workers and like the government. So this gives employers an extraordinary amount of power over workers' lives, every aspect of it essentially. As soon as they get into the country, their visas and their passports are confiscated so they are unable to leave or change jobs. A lot of them have to pay recruitment fees to the people who recruit them so that they can go work in Qatar. And these people are extremely poor so they take out loans to pay to get jobs in Qatar. And then they don't get, and then the way they're paid for their work is often very delayed getting their wages, very low wages, terrible, awful conditions. And they live in overcrowded dorms. And especially in the heat, it creates a terrible condition for workers. And guest workers around the uh, guest worker programs, as these are known, where countries that have labor deficits, they need to import labor. They are notorious for human rights abuses, but the kafala system is unique in the way that it gives employers such an inordinate amount of power over the workers that are working under it. And unfortunately, there have also been like uh, reports of many deaths working on building these lavish stadiums. The official numbers out of the Qatari committees, they say 37 deaths of workers working on World Cup projects and only three were directly work-related. However, the International Labor Organization disputes these numbers, saying that around 50 have died directly related to World Cup projects. Even more are injured and more die just from other causes like heart attacks, strokes, heat. These causes, they're, um, they're like written down as natural causes rather than work-related, so they aren't included in the Qatari numbers. But obviously, if people are dying, if, if a large amount of people are dying from like heart attacks, strokes, heat stroke, it's because of the conditions that they're working under. But these aren't taken into account. The Guardian, they had a somewhat controversial story. They reported that about 6,500 workers, primarily from South Asian countries, had died from between 2010 and uh, I believe 2020, the decades since the, since the World Cup was given to Qatar. Now, this number is a little bit misleading because not all of them died building World Cup projects. A lot of them died before that, um, before constructions for the World Cup even began. But the fact that 6,500 migrant workers still died is an extraordinary number. And these different causes have to be taken into account by Qatar. Suicide rates are extremely high. And right now, a bunch of families of workers who died, they're seeking $440 million in reparations from the Qatari government. But the government has so far denied even acknowledging the fact that that many people died and they've said that there's no reason for them to pay these families so these families that lost their breadwinners who went to Qatar to support them they don't have anything else for them now and hence why many are calling for boycotts and just general apprehension about this current World Cup and the situation that we currently find ourselves in I do want to get into the the attempts also uh, the host nation has made into changing their labor laws to attract (coughs) do you want to go into that at all Bobby 
Uh, yeah, so Qatar has made efforts to improve the labor conditions and abolish the kafala system in 2017 uh, while instituting a wide range of reforms in 2019 and 2020. Yet, a 2021 report by the Human Rights Watch says that worker abuses still continue and that The Guardian says that many workers still can't change jobs due to threats from employers. They also passed a law limiting working hours, requiring minimum wage, and preventing workers from working in excessive heat certain times of the day to protect them. Yet the ILO fears that the progress being made will halt after the World Cup ends and the spotlight moves away. Uh, They also introduced a wage production program to make sure employers pay workers on time. But again, the long this may not be a long-term solution once everybody stops paying attention to Qatar. And I want to get into both the response that this has provoked, as you indicated, Bobby, of like the political statements and the expressions of the World Cup in a reaction to a lot of the policies promoted by Qatar. Uh, you mentioned Hamza earlier, like restrictions that Qatar has placed on their workers, but also getting into the restrictions on women and their policies towards the LGBTQ community. Uh, Do we want to go into that? Right. So Qatar, they are an autocratic country, but they are also a conservative country. So they do have a lot of restrictions on women's expression and LGBTQ expression and rights in the country. LGBTQ people can face arbitrary arrests in the country and homosexuality is illegal. Free speech is also heavily repressed in Qatar, and officials even forced a Danish news team the other day to stop filming and reporting because they were not in a sanctioned area to film. And the World Cup organizers did later apologize, but this just reflects how there's no um, tradition of like having like a free and open media in Qatar. And that's part of the reason why so many people are boycotting or criticizing the country. Many celebrities like Dua Lipa, they've said that they will not go and perform. And like other people have criticized celebrities like David Beckham, who is a soccer legend. They've criticized him for serving as an ambassador, representing the tournament to the world. So people who are celebrities who are attending the World Cup, they have been criticized for enabling Qatar's human rights abuses. Whether that's fair or not, that's debatable. But uh, that has been the reaction to a lot of people. And I don't only think it's like celebrities or certain just individuals making these protests if I'm correct, Tom, it's also like some of the teams and the players who are actually (coughs) competing in the event and making these protests. You mentioned earlier, Bobby, that you wanted to go into like both the team aspect of protesting against certain restrictions that the host government has made. Yeah, so many teams have said that they they would wear rainbow armbands to protest Qatar's anti-LGBTQ laws. Just yesterday, there was a controversy saying like Harry Kane, who's a striker for England, would face a yellow card if he, which means that not to get into soccer here, but he would essentially face half a punishment to getting ejected from the game if he started the game wearing that rainbow armband. Many teams are criticizing not only that policy, but Qatar's worker abuses, um, such as Denmark and Australia, team-wise. FIFA has told teams to focus on football instead of politics, and yet the FIFA president gave an amazing press conference, calling out the double standard of Europeans giving moral lessons to other countries after everything they have done and made some pretty amazing quotes that we're not going to be saying here today, but he's kind of come down on both sides of this. It's really difficult, I can imagine, for FIFA, but that's also their fault for putting this in Qatar, opening up, you know, all these free speech controversies in a country that doesn't allow free speech. Yeah, there's been a lot of protests from teams, players, and it's kind of been not out of control, but, you know, it's been a very prominent issue during the World Cup so far, and I assume it will continue to be. And not just you 
we're talking about both the political nature of the World Cup when we're getting into this, but there's also like other events going on that affect, of course, teams that are playing. There's a lot of attention on the Iranian national team right now, which is in Group mm -hmm. A with England, Wales, and the United States, and what what is their reaction going to be? And also, kind of a somewhat norm move towards normalization between the nation of Definitely Israel softening, yeah. and Qatar, which a lot of Israelis are allowed to fly to visit the World Cup when they were not allowed to, and there's no flights between the two nations previously. So Yeah, so a lot of eyes are on the Iranian team because of the protests, the massive protests that are going on, and these players have expressed support for the protests, and notably when Iran played today, none of the players sang the national anthem. Uh, go, as for Israel and Qatar, that is also interesting because Qatar has been opposed to normalization and they still say they are opposed to normalization, but they are allowing Israeli fans to fly directly. Interestingly also, Qatar and Saudi Arabia's relations have also gotten a lot better after Saudi Arabia led a coalition in boycotting Qatar and blockading Qatar for many years from 2017, and that only ended last year. And then at the opening ceremony of this World Cup, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia was seen sitting next to the Emir of Qatar. So there's definitely a lot of uh, geopolitics going on in the background. I want to just finish off what everything that we've discussed here, guys, and go into and just ask some summarizing questions since we're all soccer fans, but also interested in both the geopolitical nature of this event. Simply put, what can we expect from this World Cup as we move into it past the first few games? And the age-old question, do you think that this will encourage FIFA or football in general, football federation in general, to change its ways? I'll start with you, Bobby. What can we expect from this World Cup? Well, so, so, so far we've seen political controversy and protests, and I imagine as it goes on, we will, this will not be ending. It will definitely be a prominent issue, not just for the teams, for the players, but really casting a shadow over the World Cup in general. And FIFA's just going to stand by it. FIFA stood by Qatar this whole time. They're not going to change their ways. They've been indicted time and time again. There've been controversy after controversy, and they've you know made symbolic gestures, but they're never really going to change their ways. It's generally, not to go too much into opinion here, but it's a corrupt body, and that's pretty much <coughs> consensus. I think we'll also continue to see a lot of virtue signaling from both sides. We see people who pretend like <coughs> there are no human rights abuses in Qatar and the only reason they're being targeted is because it's being held in the Middle East for the first time. And then on the other end, we see people who act like no other country has ever committed human rights abuses except Qatar. And the U.S. is hosting the World Cup. And the, the U.S. has also been notorious for human rights abuses. But those aren't being held under the, magni the magnifying glass. So there's definitely a lot of political messaging, virtue signaling, protesting that's going to continue going on. At the end of the day, people are still going to enjoy the game. People tune in to watch the sport. They don't tune in to watch the politics. Will FIFA change? We can be hopeful. The fact that they're trying to have World Cups be hosted around the world, that's an admirable concept. The fact that they've chosen two very autocratic countries in the last four years, that's less admirable. But at the end of the day, moral tests for hosting the World Cup, it's not a good rabbit hole to go down and a Middle Eastern country hosting the World Cup for the first time is a big deal. Well, this has been a great discussion. Hamza, Bobby, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Drew. Joining me now to run on some other headlines this week is our news reefer, Juliana Mori. Hi, Juliana. Hi, Drew. What headlines do you have for us this week? Chinese protests over COVID-19 restrictions, a recap of G20 summit in Bali, and Iranian parliament urges for a death penalty over protesters. Some important developing stories to cover then. Let's start with the protests in China. China's zero-COVID strategy has recently been exposed on the internet showing the harsh realities the Chinese public is still facing 
almost three years since the pandemic began. Specifically, the Guangzhou province in China has recently been exposed with dramatic footage of the eviction of tenants with landlords throwing items out of buildings, the breaking down of COVID-19 barriers, and food shortages experienced by residents. Riot teams have been deployed to contain the protests of the people wanting less restrictive and harsh policies. A situation that will definitely require further monitoring. And you mentioned recapping the summit in Bali? The two-day meeting addressed many issues and attempted to make worldly decisions but failed to make a decisive action addressing the Russian-Ukrainian war. The Western ministers condemned the war in Ukraine, acknowledging the potential results of human suffering and exacerbating existing fragilities in the global economy. However, the ministers of China and India failed to accept proposed sanctions against Russia. The ministers established a pandemic fund of $1.5 billion to prepare the global south for future pandemics. Under the IMF, there was an almost $82 billion trust created to help the global south as well. So despite the disagreements, important deals and agreements were secured then. And you mentioned there was further developments in Iran? Yes, almost 400 people have died since the beginning of the protests, and over 15,000 people have been detained by the morality police after protesting the harsh gender discrimination faced by women in Iran and the death of Masa Amini. Iran's parliament urged the death penalty for all arrested protesters, but they don't have any judicial power. The status of those imprisoned is uncertain. Most arrested protesters have lost contact with the outside world. No official executions have been reported yet. Thank you so much for coming on, Juliana. Thank you, Drew. Now that is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Jason DeLeon, associate producers Eric Bunce and Hamza Khan, technical producers Andrew Akulia and Bobby Kyle, and of course, your host, Drew Starbuck. The Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.